Hi, everybody. Welcome to the JDO Show. I am your host, J. David Osborne, back again with another episode with one of my favorite people, Mr. Rob Volmar. Hi, Rob. How's it going? It's going great, man. Looking forward to chatting today. I think we'll, we'll probably just do every episode with Rob because it's always fun and you always have good things to say. Um, so today we are going to be talking about Twilight of the Machines by John Zerzan. Um, to kind of start it off, to sort of frame the book in the context of our previous conversation, uh, if you guys haven't checked that podcast out, uh, go ahead and do that now. It's, the, it's a few episodes ago in which Rob and I discuss Can Life Prevail by Penti Linkola. Um, and within that discussion, we talk a lot about the concept of deep ecology. And as a way of framing this book, Twilight of the Machines, um, I thought that we could start off by sort of picking up that thread and seeing how uh, Twilight of the Machines might offer a kind of uh, a way into deep ecology through through Zerzan's anarcho primitivism. So these are these are a lot of words, but I know that uh, Rob will be able to make sense of my word salad. <laughs> You're very optimistic, sir. No. Okay. I uh, so yeah. When we talked about Linkola, you know, we talked about deep ecology, um, which you know, if you think about your kind of standard environmentalism in the West, that would, in a lot of cases, constitute, you know, like a shallow ecology, uh, because, you know, the environment is only valuable for protection to the extent that it is useful to human beings. And so deep mm -hmm. ecology goes one step further and says, hey, what if all of these things actually have like an intrinsic value? <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, that that aren't really about like human use or human comfort. And uh, so the question, you know, that you arrive at at the end of that critique is, okay, you know, by what means do you mm -hmm. bring this this about as kind of a a, a human ethos? And uh, of course, legal is. As, as we explored, you know, his, some of his uh, responses to that question are, you know, um, engaging and, and, you know, really put a valuable critique on modernity and modern civilization. And then, you know, some of them are um, kind of uh, like fascist wet dreams. Well, why can't, why can't we just toss a whole bunch of cats in a bag and throw them motherfuckers in a river? Right. Yeah. yeah and, and, uh, you know, for people who, you know, are, cha are chafing uh, against the, you know, the controls of, you know, modern industrial life like that, you know, that's kind of like a, a nostalgic pitch, if you right. will, back to, you know, when people were subsistence farmers and they didn't really have the um, luxury of letting a bunch of more cats running around the farm, you know, and so they, they did what they did. Um, but, but then he extends that of course to, um, you know, just ba you know, basic disregard for all human life outside the boundaries of the country in which he finds himself, um, situated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, 
that's problematic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, and we, you know, we there have been a number of, you know, different, I guess you would say, like schools of thought that answer that question differently. You know, with kind of a different set of critiques and a different um, set of solutions. Uh, and one of those is um, anarcho-primitivism. So there isn't a lot of um, there isn't a lot of like uh, certainty uh, about where precisely anarcho-primitivism begins. Um, you know, some people point to uh, you know like Thoreau. Um, uh, I would definitely say that uh, the poet, um, oh Lord. Hold on, just a Robinson Robinson Jeffers uh, had kind of an anarcho primitivist slant to his work, um, but like definitely, I think one of the foundational texts of anarcho primitivism is uh, Freddie Perlman's uh, "Against Leviathan, Against History," and uh, I feel like a lot of the anarcho primitivists, especially in Zerzan's orbit. Um, sort of take that as their foundational text. So, um, so it's valuable to like to understand like what are the specific claims uh, that anarcho-primitivism is making, and then um, that way we can kind of map uh, Zerzan's writing, especially you know in this book, um, as to how it you know, how it differs from the basic model, uh, if you will. Okay, cool. That's a great place to start off then. So when it comes to anarcho-primitivism, which by the way, if we're going off of aesthetics of words, it's a, it's a, it's a cool sounding word (laughs) kind of has a, a sort of almost Mad Max feel to it, even though that's not quite right because Mad Max had cars, um, so when we're talking about, uh, anarcho-primitivism, I have not read the Perlman book, even though I think you've told me to read that. Well, not like told me, but you <laughs> recommend it. Yeah, yeah. Rob calls me up and says, have you read Perlman yet? Every, every two days, it's, it's a complete nightmare. No, um, <laughs> no, I have not read the Perlman yet, but so I have a few ideas of what it is based on, um, based on reading Twilight of the Machines, uh, first of all, uh, it does seem to be a kind of, um, at least in Zerzan's uh, uh, interpretation of it, a kind of complete turning away from technology. Like he, throughout the book, he sort of, you know, has a sort of no excuses, take no prisoners kind of idea about how, how we should go back to uh, quote unquote, the way we were, which I want to make a note of that because I, I do want to come back to this idea of the way we were. Um, but yeah, so it seems like what he's saying through most of this book is no excuses. We got to get rid of all technology. And he takes it one step further. And I, I think he kind of wants to start stripping away uh, things like language and image and, and, and symbols. Uh, to get back to a more sort of immediate interface 
with, uh, for lack of a better term, the environment. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, he, he, he's kind of specific among the anarcho-primitivists in his focus on symbolic thinking as kind of the, the root of it all. So different anarcho-primitivists, um, you know, find that hinge, they find that hinge at different places. And so like Daniel Quinn, who probably would have hated being called an anarcho-primitivist, um, for him, it was agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everything is, is still basically fine until we start doing, you know, sedentary agriculture and then it all falls apart. Mm -hmm. um, um, like Gerda Lerner uh, says, no, the, the problem was actually the, you know, the reification of women's bodies and the subordination of women, uh, which actually predates agriculture. Like this is, this is where things started going, started going south. And so for Zerzin, you know, he's like, he's like, no, look, none of these things are possible until we start thinking uh, along symbolic lines. So we're taking things that actually exist and sort of creating um, you know, mental impressions of them and then uh, reacting with the mental impressions uh, instead of the actual <laughs> like world, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, that we're a part of. And, uh, you know, it, so what, what all of those people have in common is that, you know, they make an argument that civilization, and there's a lot of components to civilization that we can kind of tease apart later, but that it's, you know, it's, it's been an experiment in human life ways and it's been disastrous mm -hmm, right. and, and that it's going to end. And so the question then becomes, is it going to end and we will just have to live with what happens in its aftermath or is there a way to purposefully uh, dismantle it? Right. Right. So we, yeah. So a man, a managed landing, if you will. Right. Yeah, exactly. Somebody has to try to steer the plane, you know, cause every, everything's on fire. Yeah. Every um, land, every landing is not equal. Right, and, right. And so it, it only makes sense that if you, if you can apply some, um, intelligence to managing that outcome, uh, you would probably not regret the <laughs> energy that you expended to do so. Right. Right. So um, as far as the symbolic thing, um, he does take it back as far as the sort of, I believe, in the invention of language itself, which there's some question as to when that actually occurred, how long human beings existed without what we would call um, a language. And there, there are some interesting maybe sort of micro threads that I'm remembering now that, that kind of piqued my interest that didn't quite get uh, too well fleshed out. Um, because he's got a lot of ideas here and he doesn't have time. Um, one of them that was interesting was the the changing of words uh, to essentially be nouns instead of indicative of what they were doing in that moment, right? Yeah. So the idea of we have we have a knife, and when we have a knife, that becomes a sort of uh, static meta image in our minds of that sort of um, what's that word when one thing represents all the things? What's that fucking? Is that a metonymy? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So basically, they it becomes this. It becomes this uh, overarching thing. Whereas language that predated that allegedly would have had it have been like a a, a cutting, right? Right. Uh, the the knife was only the knife insofar as it was becoming a knife. Yeah. Which or is, it, 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 it's its identity was dictated by how it was intended to be used. Right. 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 Um, Oh, my Kindle just shut off. I was—I had a quote here from sort of close to the beginning. So uh, this jumps forward, and it says, The roots of today's globalizing spiritual crisis lie in a movement away from immediacy. This is the hallmark of the symbolic. Civilization has made repeated futile efforts to overcome the instability and erosion of substance caused by the rule of the symbolic. Among the most well-known was Descartes' attempt to give grounding to science and modernity in the 17th century. His famous mind-body duality, which if we can pause for a second, uh, Gordon White has a great term for this. He calls it the great Cartesian head trauma, which (laughs) I I, I like a lot, Uh, provides a philosophical method based on suppression of the body, of course, that we have suffered from ever since. He claimed certainty for the system by means of the language of number as expressed in his analytic geometry. But the dream of certainty has been consistently revealed as a further repressive substitute, an illusory foundation on which domination has extended itself in every direction. I think that sums up his feelings about symbols pretty adequately. Right. Um, You know, I feel like that there is a... So, you you know, if you take this argument to its full conclusion like we should just all stop speaking and you know burn all the books and such and so forth i think that maybe there's a i think the wiggle room that's in there is that you know drawing attention to symbolic thought and what it has done is not the same as saying this thing could not possibly have a role if it's negative attributes are better understood and managed Mm -hmm. and so uh you know the irony of a person who um writes books and uh you know is on the radio every week talking about how you know words are the problem um (laughs) yeah i don't i don't think that that's hypocritical i think it's just acknowledging that like this is what we have to work with right now but but that doesn't mean that you can't identify like what what the impact of that thing on on you know human culture or the development you know it is human culture um it's the you know the part of what we know that can't be communicated just through actions Mm -hmm. gets carried on from generation to generation you know? Well, it's it's the it's the classic online comic where there's a, a sort of peasant in the Middle Ages who's carrying this big sack, and uh, he says, "I think that we should improve society somewhat," and then somebody pops up and says, "And yet you live in society. Very interesting." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like I yeah. mean, you 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 can't get away from it. We're we're deep into the framework as there's an you know adequately shows here. Um, so basically, he, he takes this idea of the symbolic and he says the real problem happens uh, when, uh, when ritual begins to develop, which I thought was very interesting. 
as somebody who's a big fan of ritual in general, um, there's this idea that uh, archaeological evidence suggests there may be a link between ritual and the emergence of organized warfare, which I thought was very kind of interesting. So like it's a, another one a little bit later says beginning with the axial age, the stress is on the static qualities of objects. So it goes back to that uh, thing we were talking about a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And it's once things become uh, sort of static, I guess, for lack of a better term, in in time, rather than being immediate and flowing, uh, you end up with things like ritual, which leads to, I believe the argument he's making there is that it leads to the beginning of hierarchies, Right. Where, right, because I think at one he, point he says shamans are the are the first are kind of the 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 first bad thing to happen. Mm-hmm. So you know it, it he even ties it specifically to um, to the subordination of women and the reification of their bodies, the turning of women's bodies into into objects uh, for um, amassing wealth and uh, you know other political. Um, activities, um, because the the first the way I understood the argument he was making, like the first division of labor is between male and female, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that actually you know ties in uh, pretty cleanly with um, with Lerner, you know, who says you know that we we learn to make slaves by first enslaving the women in our in our groups and then when we saw we're like that's useful uh then we started going and finding other women you know so this is this is the development of organized warfare uh because they were property (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so and then it's like well why don't we take a few of these dudes too and put Mm -hmm. them to work doing things that we don't want to do um and so, you know, the the kind of classical interpretation of the, you know, like a Sumerian a city uh, state is that, you know, the citizens are working on behalf of the temple uh, in order to amass all the, you know, the grain there, and then it is evenly redistributed when, you know, more recent uh, interpretations suggest that most of that um, agricultural work was being done by marginalized outgroups of of people who had been taken prisoner, and that nobody would do that shit willingly. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and right. so the only way that the only way, and so those those walls that we always talk about as being like the means by which we keep people outside are actually the means by which we keep a population hostage mm-hmm, uh, right. in order to do these things that we need them to do yeah. um, because nobody does it willingly. And right. so when, when we start thinking about the division of labor as being first uh, between uh, master and slave rather than sort of like boss and worker, um, I, th- I think honestly that we're we're arriving at something that's probably closer to being um, historically defensible. Yeah, and he has a great quote 
that I don't think I highlighted. I just remembered it because it was so good. It was towards the end. He says, uh, the the division of labor is really just the labor of division, which I thought was really cool because the division of labor, um, after you have all these sort of symbolic um, over time and we get to places like, you know, uh, Sumer and Egypt and places like that, every civilization in general uh, is is based on dividing people up into what they do, but the key word there is dividing people up, yeah. is sequestering them, which finds mm-hmm. its modern uh, incarnation in like cities, basically, like right. mod- modern cities. We're we're all in these little little boxes, basically. So most of the anarcho primitivists place this a very high premium on the no- on the notion of domestication. Right. And so we think about that as kind of a, you know, sociological progression over time. Um, You know, first uh, people learn to domesticate the animals. And this is a this is a means of sort of increasing the efficiency of hunting. Mm -hmm. Right. That there are certain species who are um, more susceptible to domestication than others. And uh, I think it was I think it was Peter Michael Bauer writing as Urban Scout who talked about that. You know, the process of domestication is very interesting because it weakens our prey, mm. and so we we you know cut the bulls off the you know the horn off the bulls and we uh, you know um, castrate and we sort of create these environments where animals are sort of trapped in the adolescent um part of their life cycle Mm -hmm. and that's and those are the means by which they're domesticated and so the anarcho-primitive is just extend that and say is there any animal on the earth to whom that applies more uh appropriately than human beings Mm -hmm. like we actually learned (laughs) domestication by first domesticating ourselves and Mm -hmm. then with with all of the kind of you know violence that that um that that assumes and Mm -hmm. that it's and that it's it it has to be an ongoing process because nobody gets domesticated willingly Mm -hmm. like so it's not like you can just do it once and then, oh, these are our life ways. Like, if we stopped domesticating people today, mm-hmm. everything would be radically transformed instantly. What do you think that that would look like? Oh, who knows? Yeah. Um, I mean, what what would that look like? Well, you know, for you know anarcho-primitivists it's it's kind of like peeling back the layers of trauma that have been um, visited upon you know uh, members of the human race so like whoever has already been domesticated it you you may see the promised land but you'll never enter it you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. you 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 know it's uh it's it's kind of a psychological process yeah um, and i th- and 
So one of the things that I think that's interesting about um, anarcho-primitivism is that it it really um, has kind of a, a post-colonial uh, basis mm -hmm. uh, because we because of, because of all the great work that's been done, um, you know, in the second half of the 20th century and and on into the 21st about the the effects of colonialism and. Um, what happens to you in the process of being colonized and then during an occupation and then afterwards. And um, that's kind of their, the basis of their, you know, critique of domestication is that, you know, we're, we, we've been occupied mm -hmm. and, so, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a very painful process. Um, Perlman talks a lot about, uh, you know, the armor, can always be removed, but you may have to take off most of your skin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get it off of you. And, uh, you know, if that sounds unpleasant, it's because it is. Yeah. And it's, that's sort of when you look at thinkers and writers like Zerzin who treat this kind of thing seriously, there isn't a whole lot of, of comfort in it that you, the arguments don't try. He's very, um, he reserves a, a special bit of his ire uh, for people who, uh, I think his name's David Abrams, The Spell of the Sensuous, mm -hmm. um, which I read a few years ago and thought was pretty okay. Um, but it's a, it's apologetic. So the folks who say um, things like, oh, yes, you're right, uh, all, of the, all, of, all of the stuff that you say about domestication and being trapped and needing to get back to the immediacy of nature is true, but... I think that we can do that with a little bit of, with a little bit of technology left over, which really kind of mimics sort of how I would think about it if I had, you know, my fantasy uh, that we've talked about, my my fantasy, you know, kind of permaculture farm. It, it's that includes a good internet connection, right. um, but Zerzin's very kind of you know hard line about it, and the whole idea is no, we we need to not have uh, internet, which is essentially a mass communication tool for, for symbols. <laughs> um, we need to just get back to living directly on the land. And the Perlman quote about removing some of your skin is, it's kind of met in works like this with kind of a shrug. Like, I mean, yeah, some of your skin's going to come off, but if you think about it, like how much quote unquote skin have we taken out of the earth doing the the other thing right yeah so there's a there's a there's a kind of self-responsibility and a self-sacrifice sacri um that could border on something like asceticism but uh but it's kind of like well i mean my problem dude just just to kind of get personal for a second is like i like indoor plumbing that would be yeah. really hard to get rid of man like that would be tough so <sighs> You know, a, a lot of anarchists, uh, you know, sort of across the spectrum, have, you know, what they, you know, what they call the praxis yes. of their critique, right? So it's if you're if you're just sitting around in a room, you know, thinking nasty thoughts about civilization, <laughs> um, like that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like if. Um, if you don't change your life mm -hmm. because of the the things that you've learned or that you've 
come to appreciate as being some approximation of the truth, it doesn't mean anything. And so mm-hmm. what is the, you know, anarcho-primitivism is, is, shares that in common with other types of anarchy that, you know, it has a praxis. And um, probably the one that people are the most generally familiar with is the, the rewilding movement. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I will also say that the rewilding movement has had some of the same uh, shortcomings as permaculture in that it, it, it turns into this kind of like Amway thing mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like you go pay this much money and somebody will teach you, you know, how to live in a forest, you know, for right, 24 right. hours without dying. And then you can take, you know, after you put your time into the scene, you know, you can have your own book and your own website and, and, uh, you know, maybe that's helpful. Like it always, it always comes across as kind of gross to me, but like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so, so that term rewilding is like, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a contested ground as to what exactly are you talking about? Um, but it is, you know, that this idea of trying to, okay, so if we're having to remove the armor, there's a couple of ways that that can come off. And, you know, so in people's sort of um, dystopian thoughts about um, some ill-defined civilizational collapse, uh, you know, where tomorrow you don't have running water, the internet or medicine or, you know, a grocery store, any of those things that we are absolutely dependent upon to function, um, that's going to be the armor being removed quite forcibly all at once. Yeah. And, you know, and if that all sounds unpleasant, it is, you know, um, you, <laughs> yeah. can, you can talk to people who have lived in, you know, Somalia and uh, Afghanistan at different periods of time and be like, oh, yeah, that shit's awful. Like, nope, nobody wants that to happen. So, you know, uh, if you think about the term rewilding, you know, it's uh, it's something that's constantly happening. And so if you instead desensitize yourself to some extent by removing those things uh, as you're able, um, but always keeping the, the idea of how can I, how could I do more with less of this? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Then, you know, whatever stage of rewilding that you're able to, you know, sort of achieve and sustain, if there is one of those precipitous drops, it's going to be a lot less far for you than it is for everybody else. And this gets back to what we were talking about in the, in, in the beginning of, um, you know, if you believe that civilization is going to collapse, how much energy do you want to put into figuring out what that collapse looks like? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in that sense, like it's not, it's, it's not a binary, you know, either you're disconnected from the matrix or you're, you know, a free, a free person running through a meadow, you know, it's more of a spectrum that Mm -hmm. you, you try to incrementally move yourself uh, in a direction. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, totally. Um, Just, I think that's great. I don't have anything to add to that. I wanted to shift gears just a little bit um, and talk about, 
the how the book how twilight of the machines talks about uh things like mental health and 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 depression um because this maybe you can kind of talk me through this a little bit but this is where this is probably where i had the biggest issue with the book in general Hmm. okay um so a few things number one um talks uh Zerzin talks a lot about sort of the rise in things like you know binge drinking and uh, and depression uh obesity all being related to modern sort of civilization right uh specifically kind of the the past 100 years or so um and I don't have an issue with that okay I yeah. I think that that makes perfect sense the way that he lays it out in the book makes perfect sense so um as is the kind of want of this book to sort of move everything back through time. The issues that I have are kind of the idea that people before 10,000 years ago were living a sort of idyllic life. So it's put into this sort of dichotomy, for me at least, uh, what what I saw the book as was, you know, before we had uh, civilization, there was no war, People sort of lived. People had their own territories, but they lived mostly uh, harmoniously with each other. And then there's a bit where he says, according to recent archaeological studies, uh, the first few million years of our existence were spent in this way. And then he lists three authors. So I'd probably have to do the research myself on that to see what what the evidence looks like. But that to me seems like a pretty bold claim that there were several million years of human experience where everything was great and then things only became bad once civilization came in. So my contention would be, how would we know whether like, the, whether depression or existential fear, how would we know whether or not that existed before a written record? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I think that that's a yeah, I think that that should be the first question uh, right. that that arises when when somebody's making claims like that. So, um, uh, so a lot of the um, claims that um, Zerzin and and other anarcho-primitivists, Kevin Tucker, and um, you know they they spend a lot of time in the literature uh, and anthropological literature specifically post-colonial um and so they don't need a sort of an archaeological or paleo anthropological basis for this for this argument because there are still uh bands of people and there are not many but there but they exist who are living in a way that we think conforms pretty closely to what what we might describe as our our paleolithic life ways okay and so i think that we need to make a distinction between everything was perfect and the the specific sort of maladies of civilization because Mm -hmm. just just because you remove war and slavery and uh oppression and domestication and uh scarcity 
you know, disease. Um, once, even once you remove all of those things, there are still some fundamental, um, you know, what the, uh, you know, sort of the incorrigible facts of being alive mm -hmm. uh, that will still, you know, would still be there waiting for us. So, like, nobody wants to die. Right, right, <laughs> and yet right. we all do, you True. know. Um, sometimes the people who we love uh, don't love us in the same way. Mm -hmm. That And that's hurtful, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Um, do we think that you know, the lives of chimpanzees who are living like chimpanzees is different in a way that would appeal to us. Mm. You know, so what, you know, of all the things that chimpanzees do have to worry about, uh, is that better than the things that we have to worry about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the argument is that human beings are animals. Mm -hmm. And there was a time when we lived as as a as a participant in the environments that made us possible, and now we don't. Mm -hmm. And there are some specific problems associated with that. And mm -hmm. so, um, I I think that there is always a danger of romanticizing a thing that you don't personally have to live through. Mm -hmm. So if mm -hmm. we think just just for example about the uh, you know, uh, child mortality. Yeah. You know, obviously a lot fewer children die, uh, at birth or soon after as a result of some of the interventions of, of industrial civilization. Um, the fewer of them are dying than would in a quote unquote natural, you know, and that, and losing a child is sad. Yes. So, so to say that, you know, that there aren't, there aren't trade-offs. Uh, yeah. But, um, we don't know, like, mm -hmm. I, I think mm -hmm. to get back to your original point, like we don't know, but what we do know mm -hmm. is that we're being driven insane. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And, and so like, if I had to choose between, uh, suffering through the things that are part of being alive, not insane versus suffering through them insane. I think that it's a, there's a basis for saying I'd rather have, you know, full access to my faculties mm -hmm. in order to, uh, give this event meaning and have it inform the way that I live my life. Yeah. And potentially experience those uh horrible things in a more immediate and real way than you or i have ever really experienced anything we i mean i i, I do feel like we one of the things that i find so compelling about this these uh, these arguments is that i feel like there are moments in our life where we have that kind of unmediated access mm -hmm. and i i mean I don't want to speak for anybody else, but I feel like it's easy for me to kind of look back at some inflection points in my life where I suddenly felt like I was experiencing things just a little too 
unmediated. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. probably just from complete lack of practice. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that shit is overwhelming and it's scary, but it's real. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that we're all um, appropriately hungry for real experiences. Yeah, because we're so numb to it right now. There's a lot of in this book about the numbing effects of consumerism, um, where, you know, uh, basically, uh, actually, I have a quote that I like. More and more, the commodity is the same as the sign in a society dedicated, above all, to consuming. This is the real status of symbolic meaning, which rules by the principle of equivalence, unlike a gift, which is given without expectation of an equivalent return. Symbolic culture swallows and defines the landscape. No part of it is distinct from the underlying disembodying movement that is overtaking what is left of presence. Commodification and aestheticization of the life world proceed hand in hand. Consuming and ineffective stylistic gestures prevail. Which is a good segue into a big question that I had walking away from this book. Rob, is, is art good or bad? Question mark. You know, I remember the first time that I read um, Plato's Republic was for a a critical theory class. And uh, I was really surprised to find uh, Plato was not really that, like, he was like, yeah, art's kind of poison. We should probably not have it. (laughs) (laughs) Or uh, he was was like, if, if if we have to have art, it needs to be um, kind of sanctioned by the state uh-huh. to to uh, that sounds like Plato, in, yeah. indulge these specific virtues and all of this uh, art. What did he say? It was of a, a lachrymose and fitful temper. Uh, I was, love that. Was That's ba- art, though. Yeah, it was bad for people. Um, you know, art is, and there's, a, I think, a good argument to be made that. Um, in some cases, art is one of the few tools that we have to really um, express the, the the horror of being trapped within this collective experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Zerzan and others would make the argument that if our lives were not so mediated, you know, we're not so controlled by the... Uh, um, kind of uh, extended desires of other people who are not us, you know, to tell us that we want this thing and you also want this thing and you need to have all these things when you're perfectly capable of having wants and needs mm-hmm. on your own without, uh, without other people interjecting uh, into that process that, that art just might not, it might not be that necessary. Right. Right. Um and 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 one thing that I, I feel like that really separates Zerzan from Linkola is is the the anarchist component of this argument, which is I am not trying to tell you how to live your life. I just want there to be a system in which I am free to live mine. Yeah. And so whereas Linkola is like, okay, all of these things are bad and this is how we're gonna get rid of them, you know line up and pick up a gun we're gonna get this done mm-hmm. um for me like the core of the anarcho-primitivist argument is that don't try to save the world 
save yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then if you, if you in fact have any success at all in saving yourself, you will connect necessarily to people who are also in the process of saving themselves. And mm-hmm. you will model behavior that will plant the seeds for other people to begin the process of saving themselves. Mm-hmm. And that everybody has this, you know, um, uh, Zerzan and Kevin Tucker uh, pretty recently have started self identifying instead of as an anarcho primitivist, but as primal anarchists. Hmm. Um, first of all, because there's a lot of anxiety about the term primitivism in there there it still has kind of the the stench of uh colonialism yeah colonialism in it so there's i don't know that there's anybody writing out there right now that hasn't tried to distance themselves or at least um refine the brand uh so to speak um away from that term primitivism so Zerzan and Tucker are both primal anarchists. And so that urge to throw off the yoke, you know, that is primal and it, and it never goes away. And so when people see that, that part of them is like, oh yeah, that thing. And they, be, you know, and then they, mo- they model that behavior. And so, you know, I, f- I find that very, um, I find that to be very inspirational. Yeah. Um, because if your plan hinges on people being something better or different than what they are because you want them to, that's not a good plan. No. Uh, and and the and the true revolutions in human behavior, uh, there was there was not. You know, there wasn't an agenda printed up beforehand. Like it's a spontaneous outpouring of of a, a shift in human thinking and human action. And so, you know, this you know makes to me a compelling argument that it's like this part of ourselves is not only sort of in there and available for access, but it's fighting really hard to get out. Yeah. And like you just need to let it. Yeah. No, I love that. That's great. So so far you have uh you've convinced me on all of uh on all of the questions that I've had so far. Um the going back a little bit to the art, uh, you know, this idea that if you had if you kind of went back to this uh this primal way of living, you wouldn't quite need art. Uh that resonates really hardcore for me because it does seem like the main issue with uh, with a, with a piece of art in general is its relation as a symbol. It's um, it it kind of feels like what Zerzin uh, sort of rails against in this is the they use words like commodification and domestication, but really what it feels like to me is is separation. Mm. So a piece of art, you know, uh, if we were living in a way that sort of ignored. Uh, the 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 oppressive force of time that we're all under uh if we ignored that we would experience these things sort of in time as 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 they came um but the act of making an art let's say you make something really funny or something really sad 
what ends up happening is that by doing that, it's like sort of catching, I guess, like a, maybe a, like a, one of those Jurassic Park mosquitoes in amber. And once you've captured the mosquito in the amber, uh, it's sort of no longer a mosquito. You're no longer really experiencing the mosquito. You're looking at it. There's a, there's an arm's length distance between you and emotion. So if you have a, and this is not in the book. This is me spitballing, by the way. I'm not trying to put words in Mr. Zerzan's mouth or anything. But but the idea is that if you continue sort of along that path, you become further and further disconnected, as we mentioned earlier, from true experience because you're so used to experiencing sadness and happiness and fear uh, at an arm's length mm-hmm. by looking at it as sort of like the, the, the mosquito trapped in amber rather than a part of a continual... Uh, uh, sort of becoming or or flow, um, it's it's more it lets it doesn't allow us to really sort of understand uh, ourselves or the world mm-hmm. because it's hard to you have to sort of like put on your running shoes and be able to run along with the current of things, not in a not in an oppressive you know beyond schedule type way, but in a you know kind of dynamic sense. So it's like dynamism versus a static form of experiencing emotion yeah so you know uh, most of the you know meaningful uh what i would call maybe mystical traditions of human culture you know acknowledge that change is the fundamental unit of reality mm-hmm. and then we you know we go back to the things you were talking about of sort of trapping trapping these ideas, trapping these emotions, trapping these experiences in a form that is static, that we feel like we can hold and we can study. Mm-hmm. And we miss out on the sort of the, the essence of the thing is that it's, it's always changing. Yeah. Everything, everything is constantly changing. And so like, you know, I've heard it, you know, talking about mental health issues, you know, I've heard that, you know, depression is when you can't stop thinking about the past and anxiety is when you can't stop thinking about the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, if you look at the different sort of mystical traditions and the premium that they place on, uh, now, Mm -hmm. and now is where things are happening. Now is where we can, um, do things to influence change and now is where experience is happening so if we're constantly thinking about what was or what will be uh trying to make plans for how we would like the future like the only plan for changing the future that makes that has any utility to it is being enacted right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so don't you know you don't dwell on how you got to where you are and you don't dwell on where you're likely to end up if things don't change. Mm-hmm. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make a choice to do something different, uh, now. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if we, if we think about that pre-symbolic thought then as being that constant sense of now, like, and everything is now, everything that's happened is now everything that will happen. It's just all now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, tying that into what we what you were saying about art like what is 
what is the functional what is the functionality of art right so if if you somebody makes a painting and then you know somewhere between zero people and infinity people will see that piece of art and they will engage in an aesthetic experience that reminds them that they are not the only person that exists in the world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh and so to the extent that people have looked at the mona lisa you know that is the volume of that of that experience you know or uh you know, I've always felt like musical performances also have that that quality, you know, intensely have that quality because you're in a space with other people who are all hearing the same thing that you're hearing. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. it's, it's this very, like, kind of fluid collective experience. And no wonder that it's been, you know, the, the history of industrial modernity has been about capturing those performances uh in such a way that you can they can be consumed and profit could be taken from them yeah and profit could be taken from them exactly but i think also it's important to you know from the other side of the coin to not necessarily confuse form with content and to realize this just came to me when you were talking about a painting and while a painting might be a sort of capturing of a moment that's put on a canvas for, for people, every time those people that you're talking about see the Mona Lisa, the, the art is an act of becoming, right? Mm -hmm. So right. something is sort of being generated by that. It really kind of depends on, I guess, from what angle you you look at it. I, th I think that there's a way to engage in this sort of immediate way with something that might be trapped in a box or in mm -hmm. amber, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Zerzan says towards the end, not specifically about art, but I liked it. Uh, the nature of experience is linked to the experience of nature. When the latter is reduced to an insubstantial presence, the former is disfigured, right? So the experience of nature, um, nature being a sort of fraught term, like the experience of nature, uh, it includes the experience of, of art right and so it, the key is to not have that sort of commoditized and devalued so as not to affect the inverse of of the overall immediate nature of experience right i mean it kind of begs the question like you know if you what what would be better to look at the mona lisa every day like if you were a you know a guard in the louvre or something like to look at it every day or to look at a different painting every day mm -hmm. because right. you know uh, even though you're correct you know in the in saying that the term nature is uh is, is highly problematic and in, in most of the ways that it's used like if you are out dwelling in the world you will be presented with something new to look at every day mm -hmm. yeah like and and so we can recognize the utility of art as it exists as a kind of remedial remediation of our disconnection from actual experiences like it's valuable in that sense because we crave those experiences and so having them in some form is better than having them in no form at all mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no i love that and it makes me think of the idea of the 
<clears throat> the sort of craving for novelty that's been perverted and sold back to us as, you know, uh, memes and Facebook likes and things like that. Every, new stuff all the time. Always has to have to have the new stuff. I love that you said, that, you know, in real life, if you were a sort of gatherer, hunter, tribe, uh, sort of moving throughout the the plains, you like you said, your experience would be different every day. So novelty would just be sort of handed to you as part of the immediacy of your existence. Yeah. And once that uh, novelty goes away, because guess what? Now you live in a box and you get into a different box and go to your job box and back and forth and back and forth. And you see pretty much the same things every day. Mm. That's where that's where the craving for novelty comes from, even in the first place. Right. And, like the, you know, the the development of, um, you know, advertising and, you know, different mechanisms for influencing what people believe that they want like you know that recognizes that sort of deep biological need that we have to cope with novelty mm -hmm. um and then perverts it into you know you know for me it's like oh if i just buy this book you know yeah. if yeah. i just if i just <laughs> you know pick up this thing to read you know right and this piece of information to what I already know that some somehow I'm eventually going to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. That has, you know, I've been I've been at this for almost 48 years now, and I'm not satisfied. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's an interesting way to describe yourself. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're coming up on an hour here. This has been a great conversation. Not exactly uh, even where I thought we were going to go with it, but it was it was a lot of fun. Do you have any sort of final thoughts that you want to something we maybe didn't bring up that you wanted to talk about um you know just tying it back in into the book like I, I i'm not sure that i would recommend this as someone's like introduction to anarcho primitivism and i and i don't mean that in a in a you know damning with faint faint praise kind of way like it's a really interesting book mm -hmm. um zerzin's uh you know, arguments are grounded in, you know, a lot of philosophy, um, anthropology, um, post-colonial critique, political critiques, you know, he's, and, and it, it's, it's academic in the sense that, um, you know, he shows his work, like he, does, he, yeah. he foregrounds the people that he's talking about. And so this, you know, it's a, he's a really great you know he's a great and expressive and compelling writer which is so helpful because um reading criticism is just it's a lot of work for most people um some of these essays get a little closer to the um kind of um you know dealing in people's experiences in the way that Linkola was able to and what makes his writing so compelling um, and so, you know, the essays will, will probably be approachable, uh, for people who aren't like into this, uh, at, at those points where he's just kind of talking about, this is how the world is. Um, you know, the, the parts where he's, where he's doing philosophical critique and, and, and bringing in all the authors, like it, that was super interesting for me. Um, but I could definitely see people who aren't used to reading that kind of work um, often say that it's kind of exhausting mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because you're constantly being, 
you're constantly being reminded of these other writers and what they've said, but you don't really like no one has enough time who's not John Zerzan to go actually <laughs> read all of those things uh, yeah. and to write this piece. So there's an element of it where it's like, I believe you, man. Like, I'll take your word for that. Um, so I, I don't know that it's like a, it, it's a good, like um, kind of primer, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, Zerzan is one of the, one of the people who have been doing this kind of writing uh, who's still alive and also not in a maximum security prison. Yeah. Right. And so he really, I, you know, he, he's, he's a great, like I've said, you know, his, his writing is really compelling. And uh, so I definitely think that like, if this was something that somebody was trying to explore in some more depth um, that he really has, you know, a multi-decade track record of writing and thinking about these kind of critical issues mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so he builds a lot of trust uh in in his work by showing it um yeah. and so if you if you're like man i just don't know if i think that i agree with that argument like fine here's the source material like go yeah right. it yourself and if you want to come back and tell me why i'm wrong uh that i know i recognize that as part of the process so yeah um, but yeah it's an enjoyable book and um you know, definitely, uh, yeah, I read it, read it through twice, uh, in preparation for having a conversation today. And I, you know, felt like time well spent. Yeah, no, it's definitely one that you could go through twice and find new things. And like you said, this is what a lot of, uh, sort of great books of, um, of this sort of nature are able to do is that, I had mentioned earlier about having to investigate the archaeological work that's been done into sort of uh, pre-symbolic human beings. Um, yeah, I got to go look that up, right? I can I can read it and say, hmm, I don't know about that, but uh, but it's like, yeah, bro, you got to read like three more books because you're not you're not quite on the level yet, um, which is always fun to me. It's like the internet comments impulse in me right to just be like i know nothing about this but this feels wrong right. <laughs> it's like okay cool yeah bet dude oh did you, oh, did you have a feeling how nice <laughs> <laughs> well i checked on yeah man well rob it's always great i look forward to our next conversation we'll be back to to do this again these episodes are pretty popular so i'm pretty happy with with uh just the experience of creating them and uh the response that they're they've been getting so thank you for your time and uh thank you for putting up with my uh disheveled lack of hey man i just don't understand time dude i'm getting so much into pr fucking primal anarchism that that time is beginning to slip for me that's that's the issue it's healthy embrace it yeah man all right cool thanks so much take it easy